welcome to the Archimedes podcast from the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. This month, we've got a short thing about what to do when you're struggling, and then a couple of cases that have been brought to us by real clinicians who have been struggling with doing stuff in the real world and have decided to see if there's any evidence that can help. As you'll know as regular listeners to this podcast, the whole purpose of Archimedes is to take real clinical questions and get people to do an evidence-based approach on them. That is, turn it into an answerable clinical question using the PICO style, then go out and search electronic databases for the sort of published information that might help us. To appraise that information and then to bring that along with clinical expertise and the context of that patient and that sort of patient problem to come up with a solution to the question that was originally posed. The first question we've got this month is from Will Creasy and Eleanor Stebbings working in Salisbury and Bristol. Their question arises from a post-take ward round after the admission of a child with viral gastroenteritis. The lower specialty trainee, or SHO in old money, originally worked in an African country and asks you whether or not you've considered giving zinc, as this is commonly used in a hospital at home when you have children admitted with diarrhoea. You're aware that the WHO and the United Nations Children's Emergency Fund have recommended the use of zinc in acute gastroenteritis in lower income countries, but really pretty unsure as to whether it is or isn't useful in higher income countries, where there are lots of things that are different between the patient groups. You decide to go and search. And what they did was they went off and they looked in a few different places. They studied Medline and Embase, did an extensive search using zinc, gastroenteritis, infantile diarrhea, those sorts of words, and came back with 26 potential hits that were then screened and looked through in detail. Um, And five randomized control trials were found to be quite useful. On the back of this, they also went searching through some other articles and found a further RCT that was based in Australia from the reference list in a Cochrane review. The randomised control trials included ranged from 70 to 480 patients and included patients from Turkey, Australia, Switzerland, Italy and Poland. The trials found on the whole, a small benefit in four of the six trials and no decent benefit in two of the six trials. When you put that alongside the Cochrane systematic review and meta-analysis that looked at the rate of response against the likelihood of zinc deficiency, there's certainly a suggestion that it really works better in children that are more zinc deficient than children that aren't, and the possibility that it's associated with both an unpleasant taste and possibly an increase in vomiting. Although of the trials picked out individually, not one of them had that as a outcome in itself. The authors conclude that given that zinc is relatively easily available, it's cheap, it has minimal side effects to do with taste and potentially vomiting, but but maybe not, then it could be a reasonable thing to do in high income countries. This is in some disagreement with the current NICE guidelines, where which took the data primarily from a large Cochrane review that didn't include all of the trials that have been found here. Uh, and then following on from that, the European Society of Paediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology and Nutrition guideline, again, noting that there's no definite benefit for zinc and so suggesting that it not be part of routine care. 
This is an interesting finding. Looking at the studies showing some small benefit, other people reading that without a definite benefit as being a not particularly something to do, and others looking at it as with these authors and saying, well, it seems to work elsewhere in the world. It's a fairly innocuous thing and it might help diarrhea get better and diarrhea is gross. So why don't you go down that line? I think it's a good example of where what we do in the practice of evidence-based medicine is look at the evidence, analyze it, think about it in context, but it doesn't give us a necessarily correct answer. What it gives us is a framework to discuss the views that we have of the evidence that we see in order to come up with a sensible clinical conclusion. Leading on from that, we've also been wondering this month about what do you do when you're putting evidence into practice? And for me, that sort of pulls together around the word incongruous. You see, I've struggled with spelling for most of my life and still occasionally I do do pronouncing really quite badly wrong. Um, for example, for about four Harry Potter books, I pronounced Hermione Hermie one in my head. Um, if you look at it, you'll see why I am still very right in doing that, even though it's wrong. Anyway, whenever I see the word incongruous, it really gives me shivers because it's one of those words that, that makes me think of spelling tests and how I get things wrong all the time. The, the, the joy of word and it's underlining red when I get things uh, spelt incorrectly is, is so much good. Uh, anyway, anyway. Incongruous is a very good word to describe the findings of many people when they start to look at research in an area. There are a small number of studies often that don't seem to fit in with the work from lots of other people. They're incongruous. Now, if you see this, it should lead you to examine potential reasons why there are differences appearing. Is it that one study is so overwhelmingly large that that is the one that's likely to be true and the other studies are small and probably have elements of publication bias or, or small study estimates? Is it that, that one study or a couple of studies use a very, very different comparator treatment or, or a very different dose of the comparator treatment compared to the others? So the outcome measurement will be different. Is it that the outcome measurement itself is different? Are they measuring what we're saying, resolution of diarrhea or whatever, in a different way? And that some studies do it in a better or worse way, and so they're more likely to be of higher or lower qualities. If you see on incongruity in the studies it, it should flag it should flag you to say i need to think about this more sometimes you can posit a reasonable explanation for it and then you'll believe the majority sometimes you just have to accept that people find different answers in different situations and that you don't really understand why you still have to go with something but then you should step forth uh, with caution uh, because as every Harry Potter-based reader and wizard knows, what you see isn't always how life actually is. The second clinical case this month is from Wilma Targa and Andrew McArdle at the Connaught Hospital and St Mary's Hospital in London. Their case concerns you working in a regional hospital in Sierra Leone. A three-year-old child arrives with a history of fever, progressive weakness, reduced consciousness and convulsions, on examination, she's got moderate respiratory distress. She looks very pale. She is unconscious and her malaria rapid diagnostic test is positive. 
The PCV on a spun sample is 20%, which leads you to estimate the haemoglobin at around 6.7. Given how pale and well she looks, you're wondering if that 6.7 is actually an accurate estimate. The background to this being that the WHO suggests that you transfuse children um, with haemoglobins between 4 and 6 grams per deciliter. And this team have gone away and provided an answer based around an extensive literature search where they went through 747 potential papers to give an answer to this question and pulled out eight studies that examined the relationship between pack cell volume and haemoglobin. Unlike many of the studies that we see in Archimedes, these studies were enormous. The smallest was 235 patients, then 968, 1,123, a couple at 2,500, one at 3,200, one at 5,400, one at 6,000, and a study of 13,667 separate samples that were analysed to look at the relationship between these two variables. These are enormous numbers. And what did they find with all of this? Well, the majority of them showed that the rule of packed cell volume divided by three estimates your haemoglobin to be inaccurate. In fact, it overestimates the haemoglobin concentration, particularly when there are low levels of PCV. Within these studies, the majority of them, it has to be said, were not done in malarious areas and weren't done exclusively with children. But there were three studies that were done in malaria areas. Two of these studies with 1,000 patients from Ghana and 5,000 patients from Mozambique and Tanzania showed that overestimation was indeed the case. And the only study that really disagreed with this was 1,000 patients taken um, from a malarious area, but patients on dialysis, where they said that the PCV over three was not an exaggeration of the haemoglobin. The difference between this study and the others was that the PCV was done not by a spun method, spinning down and then looking at the proportion of the tube with the cells in it, but instead by a conductance method. And that in itself may provide uh, extra differences between this and the other studies. When you take all of these data into consideration, really, I think you do have to conclude that the PCV over 3 is an overestimation of the haemoglobin. And particularly if you're in a situation where there's a child that you think maybe would benefit from transfusion, particularly, say, respiratory distress or a, a prostrate child because of their degree of unwellness, you should really only trust a haemoglobin that would be greater than 8, so more than 2 grams per deciliter above the transfusion threshold to be truly in a situation where transfusion wouldn't be recommended. So, that's the Archimedes for this month. If you want your clinical question to splatter across the podcasting airwaves to be a star to help people save lives and improve your cv then you too can do archimedes please email in ask questions and get yourself on the publication path to an archimedes which will support you and others in doing evidence-based medicine in practice so until next month thank you very much for listening